It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning and to uh, follow in Pastor Mike's well-worn path back and forth every Sunday between Lake Forest and Highland Park. Uh, I was thinking while I was driving up here, I got my driver's license, of course, when I was uh, 16 years old. And at that point, I had already been uh, on staff uh, at a church for about a year as uh, music director of Grace Church up in Kohler, Wisconsin. And so... I, th- I think with the exception of an emergency room visit a couple years ago, this was my first time sort of out and about driving around on a Sunday morning, and uh, I saw all sorts of interesting things, including uh, my wife uh, running to the store, and so thanks for the, uh, the new opportunity this morning. Uh, last year, a close friend of mine from grad school was getting married here in the Chicago area, and his dad was kind enough to invite me to uh, a bachelor party golf outing that was happening the day before the wedding. And a couple of weeks in advance, he emailed all of us the foursomes for the round, and I'm reading through the list, and I come to the foursome that I've been assigned to, and I see all the names, uh, Kay and Gresham, the two uh, family names of the groom, Lemihue, my name, and then Crenshaw. And I thought, well, Crenshaw, that's an ironic, uh, famous golfing name. Only later I realized that my friend's dad was indeed a lifelong friend of two-time Masters champion Ben Crenshaw. Now, on one level, I was not intimidated to be in his presence. Uh, I'm about a foot taller than he is, about 50 pounds heavier, and 30 years younger. So if we were using our golf clubs to joust or something like that, I would have dominated him for sure. However, once we stepped onto the golf course, I knew that I was toast. Now, normally if I were playing in an event like this, it was uh, team play, and you know, you don't want to let anyone down. So I would have made it out earlier that week to hit some balls, and I would have shown up 30 minutes early to spend some time on uh, the practice screen. You don't want to make a fool of yourself in that situation. But for some reason, uh, at that time, I felt compelled to go out there and practice again and again in the days leading up to the event. It was kind of a strange phenomenon, right? Nothing I was going to do was going to impress Ben Crenshaw. It wasn't like he was going to say to me after the round, boy, Nathan, playing against Tom Watson in the 84 Masters was tough, but that was nothing compared to today. (laughs) But for some reason, I felt compelled to step up my game. And in our scripture passage this morning, we're spurred on to greatness in that same way. Except 
not only are we performing in front of one legend, in front of someone who we look up to and admire, but we're performing in an entire stadium full of them. And not only are we playing a four-hour round of golf, but we're running a super marathon, a race that, in some of our cases, takes years and years and even decades to complete. And I'd like to uh, read our three verses uh, once again for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, where we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we pray now that you would send your spirit to work in each of our hearts and minds through this, your holy word. We thank you for it, and we pray that uh, it would be life-giving and life-changing now through our time this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the analogy of a race, as you probably know, is found throughout Scripture. Paul uses it as one of his favorite images, and it's often much to my chagrin, since I really hate running, and I constantly have to read about how the Christian life is so much like running a race. And I think, you know, the farthest that I've probably run in the last 10 years is from the garage to the curb in order to get the garbage can in order to avoid freezing to death in the winter. But the Bible is saying, if you are a Christian this morning, then you are in this race. Your life is like a race. And your race is taking place in this giant stadium filled with people. But the spectators aren't just lazy bums who are there to watch. It's not like when I go to a football game and I'm lounging there with my giant pretzel and cheese dip. No, these spectators have already run the race. They've led the way. And if you want to know who some of them are, all you have to do is page back to Hebrews chapter 11 where we get a big list of them. So it's Abraham and Noah and Moses, all these heroes of faith. And they're described as a cloud of witnesses who are surrounding us while we run. But what's the point? What good does it do for us to know that they're all in the stadium while we're running the race? Well, I don't think that the reason is so that we'll know that our dead friends and relatives are looking down on us and watching our every move. And it's certainly not telling us that we're supposed to be communicating with them in some way. For instance, my Uh, Grandma died this past Thanksgiving holiday, and I would consider her to be someone who ran her race particularly well. She's a kind of hero of faith in our family. But I'm not really sure that she's sort of looking down on me and keeping tabs from me from up in heaven. And to be honest, I might be embarrassed if she were doing that. The emphasis here is not on the witnesses watching me, but on me seeing the witnesses so that I can say, hey, these guys all did it. Look around. They all ran the race, and so can I. They made it to the finish line, so I can too. Have you ever thought to yourself, if I can't be a better Christian than this, I might as well just quit. Why do I even bother? 
Well, the message to you this morning is that we're surrounded by thousands upon thousands of witnesses whose lives testify to the fact that it's worth it to stick it out. It's worth it for you to finish your race. In preparation for a trip that my wife Julie and I are taking this summer, I think I can now safely say that I have read all of the guidebooks on Italy that have been published in the last three years that we have at the Highland Park Library. And the other week I was there to check out a new guidebook that had just been published. It was the Fodor's Essential Guide to Italy, which is just another way of saying it's the concise guide, the abridged version of the bigger book. And I kind of poo-pooed it when I first saw it and thought, you know, I want the real thing, I don't want this pocket version. But I checked it out and I went home and I read it and my opinion began to change. And the premise of the guide is there's lots more that you could know, but if you can master this material, then you're going to be fine. And we're going to see that these three verses from Hebrews chapter 12 this morning are a little bit like that guidebook. This is the essential guide to running the Christian race, to living the Christian life. There's lots more that you could learn, like 66 books worth, but if you can master this, you will successfully run the race. And according to our essential guide, there are four steps to running the race successfully. And the first is that in order to run the race, we have to throw something off. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We have to take off some weight. Many of us have probably had the experience where a dear friend has come to us and excitedly said something like, guess what, I've made a goal for this year, I'm going to do a marathon. And you've thought to yourself, do you mean like a movie marathon? Do you even know what a marathon is? Because you're carrying a little too much weight to make it the 26 miles. We all know that in a race, we can't be carrying any extra weight if we want to be successful. Ancient runners, of course, took this principle to the extreme by taking off all their clothes before the race. And here, we're told to first throw off everything that hinders, which apparently includes even legitimate things, even good things. So I wore a a coat here this morning, for instance. There's nothing wrong with me wearing a coat outside today, other than the the fact that one year ago today it was 80 degrees, but that notwithstanding, a coat is a good thing. It keeps me warm. But if I were to run a race, I would be a fool to keep my coat on. And the reason is, the good is often the greatest obstacle for the best. It's a phrase I, I once heard a preacher say, the good is often the greatest obstacle for the best. What good things are holding you back this morning? What legitimate things are preventing you from pursuing something with even more eternal significance? One obvious example might be Uh, television or some other kind of technology, which can be a good thing in moderation. Julie and I are planning to relax tonight after a long weekend by watching a movie. But if that's how we spend every night this week, well, it might get in the way of doing something more important. What are the good things that are getting in your way? Is it entertainment and television? Is it money? It could even be a, a relationship. Well, we're told to throw off everything that hinders. There's also a second thing that we're supposed to throw off. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily 
entangles. It's a phrase that's not found anywhere else in all of Greek literature. So the author makes it up just for us. And it's another athletic metaphor. Sometimes when I'm at the gym uh, and I'm riding the stationary bike, uh, and during the winter I'm wearing like these athletic wind pants, and they're a little too loose by the ankle, and they keep getting caught in the pedal mechanism. And he's saying, sin is a little bit like that. You just keep getting more and more wrapped up in it unless you rip it out of there. Or uh, you might think of a a carnivorous plant where a fly is attracted to a, a certain smell or to a taste. And as soon as that fly indulges himself in what at first seems so appealing, he gets trapped in there. And in his little fly brain, he thinks, whoops, bad idea, let's start trying to get out of here. But the more he struggles, the more he gets more and more entangled. And at some point, he thinks, you know, this really isn't so bad after all. Sure, I can't escape, but I've got all the good stuff I want right here in this plant, all the sweet stuff I can eat and drink. I'm fine with this life. Except, of course, that before long, the plant has closed completely around him and left his body without life. It's a terrifying image. Perhaps some of you are in the struggling phase this morning, struggling with sin, trying to get out. Or perhaps you've already given yourself over to it and said, what's the point of fighting anymore? I'll just let this run its course in my life. We each have different sins that entangle us. It might be envy, or laziness, or pride. I think addictions are one thing that's a particularly powerful example. During this past year at Men's Fraternity, we've had two experts who have come and talked to us about sex addiction, particularly related to pornography, and about how the addiction basically reprograms your brain to fire in a new pattern that responds to the addiction rather than to reality. It's because the deeper into sin you get, the more and more it entangles. And the point here this morning is that all of that stuff needs to be stripped off. You have to take off the weight if you're going to finish the race. In some cases, that might be as simple as unzipping my coat and setting it aside and off I go. But for many of us, it's a much more radical divestment. Just as ancient runners were prepared to strip off everything in order to compete, so some of us this morning have to strip our lives radically of sin, or we're just not going to make it. Well, second, in order to run the race successfully, we have to follow the right course. I saw a story from last fall where a man who appeared to win the Sioux Falls Marathon was disqualified for running the wrong course. The story says this. 37-year-old Alec Nyku of St. Paul registered for the full marathon and crossed the finish line first on Sunday. But his time broke the race record by 25 minutes, and race officials determined that he had only run the half marathon. (laughs) Two races followed a separate but sometimes overlapping route through South Dakota's largest city, before ending at the same finish line. Nike calls it an honest mistake. He said he was confused, not trying to cheat. Well, we each have a specific course that's intended for our race. The text says, Let us run with perseverance 
the race marked out for us. And you might think, well, of course I'm going to run my own race. What other choice do I have? But how much time have we spent wishing that we were running on somebody else's course instead? You might say, I don't really like the course I'm on. You know, this other guy, his course seems to be easy and it's nice and flat and takes him past all sorts of beautiful scenery, but my course has all these twists and turns and it seems to be uphill the entire way. Well, God has designed a course just for you. You may not be able to finish my course, I don't know, but I know you can finish yours because God has set it up to lead you to the finish line. And because God has set up a course just for you, you can know that when you reach the finish line, in other words, when your life is over, you can know that you've ended up exactly where God intended you to be. He set up your course. Trust him and run that course to the end. Third, in order to run the race successfully, we have to focus on Jesus. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the word there literally means look away to. We have to look away to Jesus. Often, if I'm watching football on TV, I'll notice that, uh, I'm sure you've noticed the same thing, that the commercials are designed especially to appeal to people who like to watch football. That would be to young males, or maybe to all males. And we saw that uh, during the Super Bowl, didn't we, where some of the more talked about ads featured some elements of sex appeal, whether it was Mercedes-Benz or GoDaddy or, or some others as well. And uh, if my wife, Julie, is in the room with me when an ad like that comes on, often she'll say something like, look away from the TV and look at me instead. And that's basically what we're told to do here. Look away to Jesus. When you're running the race, there are distractions all around. And as we already mentioned, some of them are sinful, but not all of them are. For instance, notice you're not told, fix your eyes on the spectators that are there in the stadium. We know they're there. We know that their success in the race is an encouragement for us to finish, but we're not supposed to fix our eyes on them. We're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look away to Jesus, who we might picture as standing over the horizon, just beyond the finish line. And not only are we supposed to look generally in his direction, but we're told in verse 3 to consider him. Consider him. It's a word that comes from the world of accounting and careful calculation. Consider Jesus. Think carefully about him. And specifically, we're supposed to consider two things about Jesus. First, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus makes the beginning and the end of our faith possible because he was the ultimate man of faith. He's the author. He's the pioneer. If you want another athletic image, he's the champion of faith. He leads the way in obeying God the Father perfectly. He's He's like our pace car. If we follow him, we'll stay in line. But he's also the perfecter of faith. Jesus has already run the race before us. He was the first one and the only one to complete the race perfectly. He forged the path. So if you want to know what it looks like to run the race successfully, look at Jesus, the ultimate champion. But Jesus is more than just an example. 
I mean, what good does it do to, to have an example that you can never hope to follow yourself? That would be like me riding along with Ben Crenshaw in the golf cart and watching him play, and then at the end of the 18 holes, him handing me the clubs and saying, good luck, now it's your turn. I mean, I might play a little bit better based on his example, but I would still lack what's most important, the skills to be a scratch golfer. Well, Jesus hasn't only given us an example of what it looks like to run the race. He has been seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he empowers us to do it. His power works within us. He will not let us down. He wants us to meet him there at the finish line. But he's not, he's not standing there at the finish line, just kind of hanging out, schmoozing with the sponsors and sipping on Gatorade. He wants to be engaged in our race. He wants to offer you the power to finish, the power to live a life of faith. But you have to fix your eyes on him, turning aside from all the distractions. Well, beyond considering Jesus as author and perfecter of faith, we're also to consider something else, and that's his costly sacrifice. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Sometimes it's tempting to think that for Jesus, the crucifixion wasn't quite as bad as it could have been because he's divine, he's God. But we're told that his physical suffering was as intense as it possibly could be. But instead of focusing on the pain and the shame of the cross, instead, Jesus focused on the joy that was set before him. Satan wants you to be preoccupied with the pain and the shame of your race. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to lose sight of the finish line. But Jesus reminds us, it's all worthwhile. The more you're totally absorbed with Jesus at the finish line, the easier it is to push through the pain of the race. So come back next Sunday for his triumphal entry or on Thursday for his Passover meal or Friday for his crucifixion and so on. The, the more you keep your leader in view, the better you'll be able to run the race successfully. Well, finally, in order to run the race successfully, we have to endure to the end. We're told, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I hope it's obvious by this point that the race is not a sprint, but a marathon. It matters very little how fast you are. Stamina, not speed, is what is demanded of us. All that matters is that you persevere to the end. You might know that this was a constant refrain in the book of Hebrews. These Jewish Christians have been facing some hostile opposition, and they are disheartened. In fact, the word for race here is actually the root of our word for agony. It's let us run the race before us. Let us run this agony. It would certainly be easier to give up. But only a faith that endures to the end is a faith that pleases God. Just as faith without works is dead, so faith without endurance is dead. Now sometimes when we think of enduring, we think of things like, I've got to endure 
two hours at the opera, or I have to endure another losing season with the Cubs, something like that that's totally passive, where I just have to sit back and take it. But that's not the kind of endurance that we're called to. Jesus endured the cross, not passively, not, you know, I'm just going to sit back and take the abuse, but he endured it actively, saying, I will reach my goal. I will reach the finish line of the course that God has set up for me. And our endurance needs to be like that. It's day after day, a firm resolve to make it to the end no matter what. Evangelicals, unfortunately, often paint a picture where a person makes a decision for Christ and then we say, have a nice race, we'll see you at the finish line. But there are times in our lives where we need to make a decision for Christ every day. Not that we have to become a Christian again, but that we have to resolve day after day to press on. So it might be, today I'm weary, I will press on. Today I'm discouraged, I will keep going. Today I'm exhausted, I will put one foot in front of the other. You might know the story of uh, Bill Broadhurst, who in 1981 entered a 10K race down in Omaha, despite having been partially paralyzed by a brain aneurysm some years earlier. And by the time he had taken a few steps in the race, almost all of the runners had already disappeared from his view. But by slowly plopping one foot in front of the other, some two and a half hours later, he finally limped across the finish line. And out of a group gathered nearby came Bill Rogers, the now a former American record holder in the marathon. And Rogers came over, removed the medal from around his own neck that he had just won, and he gave it instead to Broadhurst. One finished first, and the other finished last. But they both ran with perseverance, and we must as well. The person sitting in front of you or behind you today might be farther out in the race than you. I don't know. But each of us has the opportunity to finish our own race well and to be declared champion by the ultimate marathon record holder of all time, by Jesus, who finished his race years ago, but who will someday slip a medal around your neck and will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray now as we've uh, listened to the words from this text that you would fill us with uh, a supernatural endurance and perseverance, that we would make a decision to follow Christ every day, that we would fix our eyes on him, 